The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. So pretty easy to read one of these. Uh, Again, not the only place you'll hear these kinds of words where it appears that the guy writing them is perfectly righteous. And so he has, by merit, been given his kingship, if you will, which what is But that's not the case. That's not what this means. Uh, we know that more systematically. If you study your systematics, you know that can't be what this means. Um, and there's a greater context for that. But clearly what it does mean is that there's a difference between pursuing righteousness uh, day in and day out and soteriological righteousness. Soteriological or salvific righteousness is that righteousness uh, which was necessary for us to be declared innocent. That righteousness was accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ as he walked as a man. And uh, the penalty for violating that righteousness was put on the cross. And so that's not what's being talked about here. It's being talked, what's being talked about is David's pursuit of following the statutes of God. And uh, while not perfect, that's what he's done. He has pursued the statutes necessary uh, and in the course of his kingship has followed them. And so it's simply an acknowledgement of that. But the presupposition here in him saying this is that God has gone before him with justice, grace, and mercy um, that has given him the calling and the wherewithal for those, uh, to follow those statutes. Now, the question is, what are those statutes? The statutes are the word of God. Maybe it wasn't completed at, the, at this point in history, but it's the word of God. And so uh, that's why we continue to uh, submerge our minds and our hearts in the word of God that we may follow his statutes, his precepts. And so that starts very simply, not to be crass about it, but it starts with education. We have to read God's word. We have to understand it. And then we get help understanding through the preaching and the teaching that occurs through the institution of the church. And your personal devotions and discipleship, which embeds it in you and causes you and I not simply to understand the word of God, but to apply it in our lives day in and day out. That it becomes intrinsic, indigenous in our lives, the word of God does, as it has apparently in this man, David. And so I would encourage you uh, as um, we begin to hear the preaching of the word, that you give due diligence to its right understanding, such that God in due time and in due mechanism would apply it to your life and mind, that we might indeed be righteous and walk in his statutes. Amen. It is, a, it is a joy to be with you, to uh, lift our hearts up to God uh, together. 
Um, uh, my name is Brian Prouty, and my wife Pam is back here. We have our, our granddaughter, Raina, with us uh, today. And uh, so it's, nice, it's good to have her uh, worshiping here as well. The, the theme that we're going to cover in our passage is forgiveness. And I know this is, this is the second time I've been here, but I try to focus on forgiveness when I preach at a new church. And why? Because forgiveness is the very foundation of our reconciliation and our, of our life with God. God leads with forgiveness. And so we must have forgiveness fixed in our heart so that we might know him and that we might love him in all that we do. And of course, by the way, Forgiveness is one of those essential ingredients in all human relationships. Please uh, open your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark, chapter 2. We will be uh, looking at verses 1 through 12. Book of Mark, chapter 2, verse 1. Hear God's word. This is God's perfect, infallible word that he has given to us for our instruction, for our correction, and that we might know who he is. Mark 2. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned, within themselves said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, And walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them, before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let us pray. Our Father, Lord, we are humble before you. Lord, this is your word. And Lord, we are in need of your Holy Spirit to take your word and to put it into our hearts that we might be changed in our life. So Lord, we depend on you to help us in this time, to instruct us, 
and to lead our hearts in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1967, Johnny Erickson severed her spinal cord in a diving accident. She was 17 years old. She would never walk again. She would never have children. She would never use her arms. She would never give a hug. She would never climb a mountain and never swim under her own power. And I remember when I first read her story, uh, I was in college in the sadness that I felt at her circumstances. To look at your arms and not be able to move them. To see your legs and never be able to take even one step. Think of, for a minute about the loss of mobility, the loss of the ability to care for yourself, and even the loss of feeling in your body. This is the plight of the paralytic. Now, I am trying to help us step into the world of the paralytic. Because Jesus is using the condition of a paralytic to teach us something about our desperate, urgent need to be forgiven from sin. You see, this passage draws a, draws a parallel. Paralysis, healing, sin, forgiveness. You see, nothing happens by accident. God planned from all eternity that this crippled man would show up in precisely this way at this time so that Jesus might proclaim his authority to forgive sins as something so much more wonderful, so much more powerful than even healing a paralysis. The greatest and most difficult thing ever accomplished in this universe is not any kind of physical healing, it is forgiveness of sin. You see, we need to step into the desperate condition of the paralytic so that we can see something of the desperate condition of our hearts. We need to sense the overwhelming joy of release that the paralytic felt so that we can sense the overwhelming joy of release from sin. You see, sin has not just crippled your body. Sin has corrupted your very soul. Sin has estranged you from your creator. It has left you corrupt in every way and destined for the pains of hell forever. See, paralysis is temporary. The judgment on sin is eternal. And so as bad as this paralytic's paralysis was, his crippled legs were not his main problem. His main problem was his sin against God. And the greatest problem in your life and mine is not financial. It's not relationships. It's not any kind of physical condition. The greatest need in your life and mine is forgiveness from the sin which separates us from our God. Now, the central theme of this passage shows up in verse 10. It is that Jesus has authority. He has a power on this earth 
to forgive sins. And we will look at forgiveness in this passage in uh, three parts. The prerequisite of forgiveness is faith. What forgiveness is and then the results of forgiveness. So look with me back at, uh, at verse 1. It says, And again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. So it says that Jesus was preaching the word to them. And so we ask, what, what was he preaching? And we can just back up a few verses to Mark 1, verse 14, 15. And it says, Jesus was saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus was preaching, What you've been waiting for, the kingdom of God, the long-awaited Messiah is here right now and therefore repent and believe the gospel and so the question is what will the people do will they repent and believe the gospel will Jesus make a lasting change in their lives and we know that many are gathered there were so many gathered here that they filled up the house and then they filled up the whole yard But we know something else. We know that although many gathered, few repented and believed. In Matthew 11, verse 23, Jesus says, And you, Capernaum, this very city, who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Jesus is saying, Capernaum, that prosperous city that was exalted to heaven by the very presence of the Lord of glory will be brought down. You see, this is the background. Many came, many gathered, but they came with curiosity. They wanted to know about Jesus. They didn't come with a desperate need to be healed. And so they didn't come with faith. Now, in contrast to this, one man came with faith. One man came to be healed. In verse 3, it says, Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And we can imagine the life of this paralytic. He desperately wants to be healed. His family and his neighbors, I'm sure, loved him. And so one day they heard that Jesus was back in town. And you can almost hear the discussion Jesus is back in town. We have to get to Jesus. And I suspect they gathered up the strongest from the home and from the neighbors to carry him. But as you can imagine, uh, four men carrying a paralytic on a pallet uh, would be the last to arrive. 
especially if they had very far to go. And so, indeed, they, when they got there, everything was, was packed so that they could not even get near to Jesus. And, and don't you love the determination of these guys? Can't get to Jesus? The roof. We will go through the roof. And, you know, the, uh, well, I love what it says in the Greek here. It says literally that they unroofed the roof. And, you know, this, it was no small task. The, uh, this was a roof that was designed to be walked on. And so they had to dig down through several layers of mud and sticks. And, you know, they, you can picture the people below, and pretty soon dirt starts to fall down and sticks. And, and uh, then a hole opens up, and the sunlight comes in. And pretty soon this man is lowered right before Jesus. And everyone looks to see what will happen. And I'm sure that the four men who carried him were looking down at their friend, wondering what is going to happen. And it says in verse 5, it says, when Jesus saw their faith. And so what did he see? Well, these guys believed. Really believed that Jesus could heal him. And it's interesting, in looking at this, I think we can see a model for how to come to Jesus in faith. You see, the paralytic came with a need. He did not just come out of curiosity. He came to be healed. He came with hope. He clearly that Jesus could heal him. Why else go to all the trouble? And finally, you know, he came any way he could. It wasn't, uh, there wasn't pride involved. If he had to be carried, so be it. Carry me to Jesus. And, well, that's how we should go to Jesus as well. And so the question is, does your faith look like this? Do you feel the desperate need to be healed? Will you stop at nothing to get to Jesus? Even if you have to be carried? And is your hope in Jesus alone? See, here is the picture. Real faith is not just intellectual. Real faith is not even just emotional. Real faith changes the way you live. You know, in James 2, verse 18, it says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, this paralytic, he could have heard about Jesus. He could have heard that Jesus could heal him. But until he got up and was carried to Jesus in hope, then he didn't exercise saving faith. See, this is the element of trust and saving faith. It is an entire casting of your life into the care of our Lord. When it says their faith, it means that he saw their hearts, he saw by their actions that they, their faith was real, that they trusted in the Lord. And the prerequisite of forgiveness is this kind of faith. 
a faith that contrasts with mere curiosity. And so we need to keep this in mind. Many came just to, just to find out about this Jesus. One came with a desperate need to be healed. And so that one came with faith. Now, secondly, we see what, what is forgiveness? In verse 5, it says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus said to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. Now, some, sometimes we can be deceived in this modern world by psychological, emotional uh, definitions of forgiveness. And, well, that's, that's all they have because they don't have the Lord. But here's what the Bible says. Your sins are a It's a Greek word translated forgiveness. It means to cleave and separate. It means to banish. It means to leave. See, when Jesus called James and John and they were mending their nets with their father and Jesus calls them, the Bible says that they me their nets. In other words, they, they up and left. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and all of his disciples forsook him and scattered, it says they afiami him. They were gone. When Jesus healed the noble man's son, the fever afiami him. In other words, the fever left him. And so do you see the picture? When God forgives you, he separates your sin from you and banishes your sin away. God's forgiveness is real. And you know, the Old Testament gives us the very same picture in several metaphors. In Micah 7.19, it says, God will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. See, when God forgives you, he takes your sins and he casts them into the depths of the sea. Now, you know, even today, with all of our technology, throw into the depths of the sea, it's, it's pretty well gone. But when Jesus preached that, it, it was irretrievable. And that is the picture. When God forgives, your sins are irretrievably gone. Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It says our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. And that is a long way. It's an infinite distance. Uh, Those sins that are cast as far as the east from the west uh, will never return. Isaiah 118 Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And you you can picture a cloth with a scarlet stain, and the stain permeates through every fiber 
of that cloth. And the picture is this. There is no sin so embedded in your life that God's forgiveness cannot extract that stain and banish it away. There is no sin so scarlet that God cannot forgive you and welcome you into his presence. You know, it's, what's interesting, in, in uh, Exodus 34, God makes all of his goodness pass before Moses. And he says, uh, the Lord, the Lord, a God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Then he says, forgiving thousands. And when it says forgiving there, that is the Hebrew word nasa. It means literally to lift and to bear something and carry it away. The picture, I never cease to be amazed at the beauty of the language in this book. This is exactly what Jesus did. We can't get that burden off of us ourselves. But Jesus can lift that burden off and he bears it in his own body on the cross. And that is precisely what the scriptures tell us. See, here's the picture. When God forgives you, he accepts you as clean and pure because he has separated your sins and cast them far away, irretrievably far away. And this means the guilt of your sin. It means the corruption of your sin. It means the memory of your sin. All your sins are cast away. Those sins are gone. Now I hope you see how impotent are all psychological, emotional ideas of forgiveness. God's forgiveness is real. You know, this week in preparation for this sermon, really, I was listening to R.C. Sproul and he was talking about forgiveness And he mentioned a a psychiatrist that said, you know, 95% of people in psychotherapy, they don't need psychotherapy, they need a priest. Well, it was close, but not quite. 100% of those people need the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our prophet, priest, and king. They need the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can take their sins and banish them away. The Lord Jesus Christ, who alone sets the captive free. You know, I was, uh, I was visiting with, with a woman once in the last weeks of her life. And I was doing my very best to remind her of the assurance that she had in the gospel. And at one point I said... You know that when you trusted in Jesus, that he took all your sins and he cast them into the deepest ocean and he cleansed you white as snow so that you might be with him forever. And she said to me, she says, oh, that's how he does it. And I thought, yeah, that's how he does it. And I asked this woman if there was any fear in her heart. Was she ready to meet the Lord? 
And she said there was no fear. You see, she had heard those most incredible of words from her Savior. Your sins are forgiven. And now it is clear that only God can forgive sins. The scribes were right. Only God can remove the guilt of sin. When David said in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. He was not saying something new. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system points to exactly this. You see, if you sin against your neighbor, justice requires restitution. But to forgive the guilt of sin, only God can forgive sin. If we look at verse 7, it says, But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, this is the scribes who questioned that Jesus could forgive sin, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Arise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. So which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk. Now, the first thing we need to see about this is that this is about do, not say. What God says, God does. When God said, let there be light, there was light. When God said to this paralytic, arise, take up your bed and walk, he got up and he walked. When Jesus said, your, son, your sins are forgiven you, his sins were forgiven. But which is easier? You know, forgiveness took God coming as a man. Forgiveness took Jesus living a perfect life, being tempted by Satan, rejected by men, bearing the wrath of God in our place. Forgiveness took Jesus being crucified on the cross, buried and raised again on the third day. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And a few verses down. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. See, oh, to forgive is so much harder. And this is the very point that Jesus is making. Forgiveness is something so unique to God himself that it could not be mistaken that Jesus is God. The scribes did not miss that, and neither must we. 
God spoke the world into existence, but Jesus died on a cross to forgive sins. Why can God separate your sins and cast them off? Where do they go? God placed your sins on to the Savior, unto Jesus Christ. Romans 8 says that, uh, Romans 8, 3 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus took our real sins upon himself. Jesus actually died at a specific time, at a specific place, to take our sins and condemn sin in the flesh, that our sins might be cast as far as the east is from the west. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he, that is God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the great exchange, our sin for his righteousness. You see, the point of Jesus' question was to confirm an answer. And it says it directly in verse 10. That you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. The miracle confirmed the greater miracle of forgiveness. And I hope you see, again, the significance of the comparison in this passage. Paralysis affects your body, but sin affects your very soul. Paralysis is temporary. Sin is eternal. To be paralyzed is a terrible thing. But oh, how much worse to be under the curse of God for sin. To be healed from paralysis is such a wonderful thing. But oh, how much more wonderful to be healed, to be forgiven of your sin. God's forgiveness is real. Finally, we see here what are the results of forgiveness. In verse 12, it says, Immediately he arose, he took up his bed, and went out in the presence of them all. So that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. So we read here that the the crowd glorified God. You see, it is God's glory to redeem a people to himself. And this is important, for although we are the beneficiaries of God's forgiveness, all the glory goes to God. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who lifted and carried each one of us to Jesus, just as the paralytic was carried. It is God, the Son, who died in our place, God, the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead, assuring that we would have everlasting life with him. The results of forgiveness are glory to God. Now, to conclude, let us go back for a minute. Many came to see Jesus. They were curious. 
but they didn't come in faith to be healed. And in the end, they left just as they had come. And Jesus ultimately pronounced their doom. One man came in faith with an urgent need to be healed. And this man left both forgiven and healed. And so the question for each of us is, which are you? Which am I? Have we come to Jesus crippled by sin in need of healing? See, Scripture says in Romans 10 that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, what does it look like to call on the name of the Lord? Well, it looks like the tax collector that prayed out to the Lord, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. To call on the name of the Lord looks like this paralytic coming with a desperate need to be healed. I suspect that none of us have faced the physical trial as severe as paralysis, but we all face sin, and by God's grace, when we know forgiveness, we know the most wonderful gift that God has ever given. No wonder Psalm 73 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And nothing I desire on earth can compare with you. And David says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. See, nothing can be more terrible than to be estranged from our God. And nothing can be more wonderful than to be forgiven, than to be called into God's very presence by his grace. You know, I started this uh, with a story about Johnny Erickson. And I need to say that she came out of her despair from her accident into joy. And she even looks back on her injury and thanks God for what she's done in her life and even for her paralysis. And how could she do this? Because even though her body is not healed, Her soul has been healed. She has been forgiven from her sins. She has heard those words, your sins are forgiven you. And that truth overshadows all else in life. See, it says Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. On earth. That means right here, right now, In your life, in your heart, in this place, Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, may you take your word and place it in our heart that we might know your goodness, that we might see the corruption of our sin, the evil of our sin, so that we might turn to you in desperate need to be healed. Lord, we are thankful that you are good in all things.
that your forgiveness is real. Lord, our heart's desire is to know you and to love you. In Jesus' name, amen.